Hi guys, I'm Rob Price. Uh, my wife Mindy and I are members here at Grace and it's great to be with you this morning. Uh, we're, uh, we're preaching through 1 Corinthians and uh, you've probably noticed that the church in Corinth is a mess. <laughs> um, they've got these celebrity pastors and then factions are developing around them. Uh, that was chapters one through four. Uh, last week, chapter five, Paul turns to issues of sexual immorality. Uh, passage today is on lawsuits between believers And then it's back to issues of sexuality and idolatry and offending the weak and not submitting to authority and abuse of spiritual gifts. And the church in Corinth is a mess. (laughs) Um, Last year, we finished a long preaching series through the book of Genesis. And there was a lot of mess in Genesis too as well. Do you remember? We watched Abraham as he made some profound acts of faith and also some just disastrous decisions. Hagar was abused. Jacob was a cheat. Like the whole Leah and Rachel thing was just sad. Simeon and Levi slaughtered a whole town. Judah treats Tamar as a prostitute. The brothers sell Joseph as a slave. The patriarchs were a mess. I don't know if you recall from our reflection services, but as we, as we looked back over the preaching series on Genesis, do you remember what people said about all this mess The mess, in God's mercy, was actually a comfort to us. If if God could use as messed up a family as Abraham's, (laughs) he could use us, he could use me, right? If even the patriarchs, in their sins and stubbornness, if even they couldn't turn away God's steadfast love, there's hope for us too, amen? Genesis was strangely encouraging because of how messed up everyone was. Well, here we are again in Corinth. (laughs) There's a lot of mess, but God's mercy is more. So as we continue to work our way through the mess in Corinth, my prayer is that in God's mercy, we will find it strangely encouraging. You know, the Lord has searched us and he knows our mess. And in his mercy, he speaks right into it. And that's because God is not interested in redeeming hypothetical sinners, theoretical sinners, sinners in the abstract. No, God loves to redeem real sinners, and that means dealing with real mess. And so in his word, God speaks to our mess, because that's where we are, and that is what God loves to redeem. And we praise his name, because friends, I don't have a hypothetical mess I don't have theoretical sins that need a little philosophical analysis. Like, I've got real sins, and I need real help. And what we find in the Bible is so real. So before we open our passage, would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we would rather not see ourselves in the mess in Corinth, but you see us there. And you see what's true. So, Father, would you open our eyes by your spirit, both to our mess and to your mercy to us in Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. So 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 through 11. When one of you has a grievance against another... Does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of sinners? I'm sorry, instead of saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? 
And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle the dispute between brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is the word of the Lord. Just like the Corinthians, Americans love lawsuits. (laughs) Just like the Corinthians, we live in a highly litigious culture. We are sue-happy. Maybe you've heard these statistics. There are more secular lawyers per capita in the U.S. than in any other country in the world. Way more. We got lawyers all over the place. And that both reflects and shapes our culture. Our culture and most of the 1.1 million lawyers, they tell us, if you have a dispute with somebody, sue them. If you have a conflict, take them to court. And that thinking bleeds into the church today just as it did in Corinth. So we need to be reminded that the gospel takes a different approach to conflict resolution. In verses 1 through 8, three things we're going to talk about this morning, and then we'll move on to verses 9, 10, 11. So in verses 1 through 8, three things. First, this passage is not about all lawsuits, but about lawsuits between believers, Second, the local church is competent to settle disputes. And third, we should rather be wronged by a believer than bring them to court. Okay, so I want to walk through these three. This is lawsuits between believers, the church can handle disputes, and we should rather be wronged than sue. And then we'll move to the rest of the passage. Before we jump in, uh, let me just say, praise God for the rule of law. Praise God for rule of law and thank God for good lawyers. You know, if law does not rule in a society, what does? Chaos or power, right? Where law does not rule, society falls into chaos and might makes right. So this morning, we're going to have to talk a little bit about the abuse of law and about bad lawyers, but let's be clear. The rule of law is a blessing from heaven, and we've probably got lawyers here in our congregation. Hey, if you're a lawyer, we like you, if you're a good one. (laughs) 
Okay, so our three points. First, Paul's talking about lawsuits between believers. Verse one, when one of you has a grievance against another. So Paul's not saying that Christians can never appeal to law. He's saying you can't do that to another Christian. And Paul's not talking about crimes like assault and theft. He's talking about a grievance, a complaint, a dispute. In verse eight, he talks about defrauding and cheating. So Paul's not really talking about what we would call criminal law. I mean, that has to do with crime and punishment. He's talking more about what we call civil law. That is, it has to do with loss and compensation. So when it comes to civil law disputes, you can't take a believer to court. Okay, but of course, once you state the principle like that, it takes some careful discernment to know how to apply it. So what if the person you have a dispute with, what if you think they're not really a Christian? Then can you sue them? Nice try. Even if the other person is merely thought to be a Christian, you cannot sue, right? Anyone who bears the name of brother or sister, Paul will say at the end of chapter five, uh, they are off limits. Okay, but what if a Christian employer were exploiting a Christian employee, right? The rich and the powerful exploiting the poor and the weak. Could the exploited Christian sue? No. But what if this employer would not submit to the mediation of the church? Or what if the church itself just refused to confront him? In that instance, could the exploited Christian worker take the Christian employer to court? No. God's word's clear here. We do not dare go to law against a brother or sister. Better to suffer wrong. We'll talk about that. Okay, well, what if a believer takes you to court? Can you defend yourself? Probably, but what should you try first? Try to settle out of court in the church first. Uh, when I was about like 14 or 15 or something like that, um, one of my dad's Christian business partners sued him. Now, this guy was a deacon at his church, and so my dad went to his pastor and asked if he and their elders would mediate. Praise be to God, the church did its job. Like, they threatened discipline if this guy continued his lawsuit, and then they reached a settlement for my dad. Saved his business. But what about lawsuits for divorce? Mindy and I each have a cousin right now who's going through a divorce. Have any of you had contact with an aggressive, mercenary divorce lawyer? who just extends his profits by extending others' misery, right? dragging things out by stirring up new resentments and new bitterness and new vindictiveness. For that kind of divorce lawyer, Dante has reserved a nice warm circle in the inferno. <laughs> As the divorce lawyer awoke from surgery, he asked, why are all the blinds drawn? The nurse answered, there's a fire across the street, and we didn't want you to think you had died. <laughs> of course, to have divorce at all between Christians is already a defeat for us. But if sued for divorce, Lord have mercy. Yes, you may defend yourself. What Paul is condemning here 
is Christians who of their own accord bring their own brothers and sisters before a secular court. Friends, don't do it. The gospel gives us a better way of conflict resolution, and that's the church. So first, Paul is talking about lawsuits between believers. Second, Paul says that the local church is competent to try cases. Verses two and three. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? Okay, this is weird. Judging the world, judging angels? <laughs> Actually, no, Paul, I didn't know. And now that I do, I'm still not sure what this means. Um, Matthew 19, Jesus says to the disciples, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So in the new world, Jesus and the apostles will be judges, and somehow all believers will participate in their judging. Now, I don't think this is saying that there's gonna be fights and disputes in the new world, but we will still need rulers, government, ways of making decisions about the common good. And guess what? Somehow, every one of us will be involved. Okay, what about the angels? Well, if judging angels means pronouncing sentence on them, well, clearly it would be the bad angels that Paul's talking about, right? Now, if Paul means the bad angels, like for me, that would be a relief. Zechariah? He got reamed when he questioned Gabriel. I am not judging no archangel. <laughs> Screw tape, on the other hand, whoo, he gonna get a piece of my mind. Or if judging angels means ruling and governing them, it would be the good angels Paul's talking about. We're told, Hebrews 2, that it is not to angels that God has subjected the world to come, but to us humans. And if the good angels are all ministering spirits sent to serve our salvation, we may actually be in charge of them. So every one of us here will either get to share and put in the smackdown on demons, or we'll be in charge of angels, or maybe both. Okay, Paul's point is this. Our destiny is to judge. Every one of us is gonna be involved competently in judging angels and demons and the world to come. Friends, if we are destined to judge in the next life, we can handle the disputes of this life. They are trivial by comparison. Friends, do you see the remarkable confidence that Paul has in Grace Evangelical Free Church of La Mirada, any dispute that might arise among us, Paul is certain that there is somebody here wise enough to resolve it. Now that's not because our elders are all trained lawyers, it's not because our Grace Group shepherds all have like years of experience in litigation, it's because the mature among us, by the Spirit, are trained in the wisdom of God's word. Now, we can get advice from trained lawyers, even secular lawyers, but we should honor our brothers and sisters here at Grace, our fellow immortals, 
right, by submitting our cause to their wise judgment. Many Jewish communities settle internal disputes by means of Jewish law, halakha. Many Muslim communities settle internal disputes by Islamic law, sharia, and fiqh. As American society grows increasingly hostile to Christianity, our obedience to this word from the Lord will only become more urgent. And we should at least take note of the wisdom of other communities who know the danger of letting outsiders settle their own internal disputes. The local church is competent to try cases. Third, we should rather be wronged by a believer than bring them to court. Sometimes Paul asks the strangest questions. Verse seven, why not rather suffer wrong? It's a rhetorical question. We're supposed to think, oh yes, of course, obviously, I would rather suffer. <laughs> That's a rhetorical question that I get wrong. I mean, <laughs> you'd never believe it, but I would rather not suffer. <laughs> Imagine. Why does Paul's logic escape us? Well, because we're not seeing the big picture. The message of Christianity is that if you have a problem, and you do have a problem, the solution is Jesus. Our ultimate problem is God's wrath against sin, and our ultimate solution is the salvation that is found in Jesus alone. But you see, all of our society's penultimate problems, Jesus is the solution to these as well. Do we want justice in our society? Well, people need what? The justice of Jesus, amen? Do we want the elderly cared for, orphans and the unborn protected and loved? People need the love of Jesus. Do we want those from outside our borders welcomed with safety and new opportunity? Then people need to meet the homeless refugee, Jesus. Do we want an economy that honors labor with a generous wage? People need to meet the generosity of Jesus. Do we want to see race no longer as conflict but as adornment? Well, then people need the Jew, Jesus, who died to save Jews and Gentiles from every tribe and nation and people and language. Amen? Friends, our society is falling apart because it does not have Jesus. And why don't they turn to him? Why doesn't our society see Jesus as the warrior for its battles and the medicine for its diseases? Why don't our rulers come streaming to Zion to learn the ways of Jesus? Why don't our culture makers see in Jesus the hero of every story and the sum of all beauty? Why not? Why can't our culture see the glory of Jesus? Sin, certainly, right? the world, the flesh, and the devil, undoubtedly, but often enough, it's because of Christians. We're not the only ones to blame, but we share the blame. Unbelievers see Christians at war with each other in the secular courts, and they think, not unreasonably, they think, whatever Jesus does, he doesn't bring the peace I need. Like, whatever Jesus is, he's not the solution to my problem. 
Friends, what a disaster. Right? How are people going to come to Jesus if we misrepresent him like that? You know, the world gets its impressions about Jesus by watching the church. Our jealousy for the reputation of the church, it's part of our evangelism. Do we make Jesus look good? Are we willing even to suffer if it keeps Jesus from looking bad? So, here are my options. A Christian brother has wronged me. And let's say that he won't even listen to the church. So, I'm wounded. I've suffered loss and injustice. What can I do? I can either suffer wrong or I can take him to court. But if I take him to court, hundreds of unbelievers will be confirmed in their low view of Jesus. God's name will be blasphemed among the unbelievers because of me. Uh Uh-uh, why not rather suffer wrong? Here at Grace, we have sons and daughters who have strayed from the faith. And we have parents who have been praying for their salvation for years. If I take my brother to court and one of our lost sons or daughters sees it, and as a result, they never set foot in a church again, how could I face their parents? What would I say? Oh, that $7,000 judgment I received was more important than your child's salvation? That's madness. It would be better, and I quote, to have a great millstone tied around my neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. (laughs) Uh Uh-uh, why not rather suffer wrong? If you remember, last time Eric Tanis preached for us, he'd recently been at the funeral of a guy named Chuck Stein. Chuck apparently had been a contented pagan all his life. There was just one problem. His wife, Lenore, knew how to pray. At 80 years old, lying in the hospital, Chuck gave his life to Jesus. But what if, instead... Just before he went to the hospital, he heard about my vicious lawsuit against my brother. That could have undone the prayer and evangelistic work of many people over decades. Could have nullified it in an hour. And what if that had just confirmed him in his paganism? Uh Uh-uh. Why not rather suffer wrong? Friends, we were baptized into the crucifixion of Jesus. Our willingness to suffer for the sake of others is part of our discipleship to Jesus. We Christians, we pray for those who persecute us, especially if they're our brothers and sisters in Jesus. As Christians, our tactics are to overcome evil with good, especially with our brothers and sisters in Jesus. So, verses one through eight, Christians cannot take Christians to court. Second, the local church is competent to settle disputes. And third, we should rather be wronged by a believer than publicly to misrepresent Jesus. Okay, that brings us to the second part of our passage, verses nine through 11. In these these verses, we get kind of a warning and an encouragement. Paul's looking back, it seems to me, on both chapters five and six. You know, he's been really harsh with them, and there's more of that to come. So he kind of takes a pause at this point, and he explains to them why it is that he's been so harsh. It's because salvation depends on it. And he also warmly assures them 
that despite their mess, he's confident of their salvation. Verses nine and 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. How many of you think homosexuality is an issue in our culture? People often criticize the church for not addressing the issues in our culture. And here in our passage, we've got an opportunity to do so. So even though homosexuality is not the main idea of this passage, it is a, talk, a chance for us to talk about some really important stuff, yes? So here we go. 2015, Obergefell versus Hodges. The Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage in the U.S. In this country, gay marriage is legal. Now, people think that if something's legal, it must be moral. Is it true that if something's legal, it is therefore moral? Right. Greed is legal, <laughs> fuels half our economy. Drunkenness is legal, just don't drive. Being verbally abusive is legal, welcome to social media. <laughs> but what does Paul say? Neither the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers will inherit the kingdom of God. That stuff's legal, but it's not moral. Right? Gay marriage is legal, that doesn't make it moral. But lots of Christians are confused about this. Right? As our culture sees things, gay, gay marriage is a good thing. What's worse, lots of liberal churches say that gay marriage is a good thing too. And so plenty of evangelicals are wondering, well, I don't know, maybe there is a place for gay marriage in the church. Now, those of you who don't wonder that, you're probably wondering the opposite. You're wondering, like, what? How could anyone think gay marriage is okay when the Bible, from beginning to end, is totally opposed to homosexual activity? Right, the Bible's condemnation of homosexual activity, it's clear, it's consistent, it's emphatic. How could anyone argue that gay marriage is okay for Christians? Here's how. But before I explain, I'm gonna, I'm gonna like walk over here because just in case anyone sort of like zones out and then zones back in and hears me saying false things, like, I, this is, okay, over here is what the bad guys say, okay? So if you tune out, just, that's what's going on. Um, I'm standing in what Fred Sanders calls the evil corner. Okay, so here's one of the most common arguments made by those who support gay marriage for Christians. They say, yes, the Bible does condemn homosexual activity. They say, yes, Sodom and Gomorrah and Leviticus 18 and 20 and Romans 1, yet lots of passages in the Bible say homosexual activity is bad stuff. We acknowledge that, they say. But they say the kind of homosexual activity condemned by the Bible is exploitative homosexual activity. The Bible condemns coercive homosexual activity. The Bible, they say, condemns promiscuous homosexual activity. What the Bible does not condemn, they say, is exclusive, committed, consensual homosexual activity. They say, yes, the Bible condemns every kind of homosexual activity except the kind that occurs in gay marriage. Therefore, gay marriage is okay for Christians. The Bible's universal condemnation of homosexual activity isn't quite universal, and the exception is what allows gay marriage for Christians. Okay. 
So that's what folks in liberal churches are saying. And that's also what many evangelicals are wondering. Our passage contains one of the Bible's most direct refutations of that thinking. Verse nine, Paul condemns men who practice homosexuality. Uh, In the NIV, men who have sex with men. Now, if you look down at the footnote, the ESV has a footnote that reads, the two Greek terms translated by this phrase refer to the passive and active partners in consensual homosexual acts. If you're reading from the NIV or if you're reading from the CSB, both of those translations also have a footnote that's almost identical. Paul condemns not only the active partner but also the passive partner. Okay, but how do we know whether this is consensual or exploitative? Well, those who support gay marriage for Christians say that the Bible only refers to exploitative homosexual activity. But what would we call the passive partner of exploitative homosexual activity? If the act is exploitative or coercive, we would call the passive partner a victim. We would call an exploitative homosexual encounter, that's sexual assault with a perpetrator and a victim. And let me ask you, does the Bible condemn victims of exploitation? Does the Bible condemn victims of rape or violence or oppression? No way. Paul here condemns the passive partner too because Paul is perfectly well aware of consensual homosexual activity. That was not a brand new idea in the first century. People had thought of it long before. So just as in Leviticus 18 and 20, and Paul is alluding to those passages here, both partners are condemned because this is a consensual act. So is it true that the Bible condemns only exploitative homosexual activity? No, the Bible condemns all homosexual activity. The Bible condemns all homosexual activity, even if it's consensual, even if it's in an exclusive, permanent relationship. Could gay marriage be an option for Christians? No. Even within a gay marriage, all homosexual activity is sin, and those who live in it will not inherit the kingdom of God. So, friends, if somebody uses this argument on you, be aware that they are talking like a divorce lawyer sleeps. First he lies on one side, then he lies on the other. (laughs) All homosexual activity is sin. But here's the thing, there's something else that this passage tells us that we need to see about homosexual activity. It's sin, yes, but it's not a super sin it's in the same category with what we think of as more respectable sins. For instance, greed. Greed can't enter the kingdom just like homosexual practice can't enter the kingdom. Greed and immoderate love of possessing, it's being a little too excited about money and stuff. But guess what? Anyone whose life is marked by greed like habitual greed, strategic greed, unrepentant greed, the kind of greed that would sue a brother at the cost of the reputation of Jesus, 
Hey, they may be in every other respect the most upstanding person you know, but they are not a Christian. They are not saved. They do not know Jesus. Unless they repent, they will be shut out of the kingdom forever. Greed will keep you out of heaven just as effectively as homosexual practice. Here's why. God gives. God gives life and breath. God gives sun and rain. God gives wisdom to the perplexed. God gives food to the hungry. God gives justice to the oppressed. God gives freedom to the captives. God gives rest to the weary and sight to the blind. God gives his only begotten son and his life-giving spirit. God gives himself. God gives. God is generous, abundantly, lavishly, exuberantly, insanely generous. Greed is a contradiction of God. Greed says, no, better to receive than to give. Greed looks at everything God gives and is not impressed, not moved, not touched, but loveless, cruel, self-consumed. Greed is no little sin. Think about it, the the misery that greed has unleashed on human society, war, slavery, economic exploitation, as we remember the fall of the Berlin Wall 30 years ago. Greed is driving the personal debt crisis. Greed is driving the crushing cost of housing. Greed is driving food deserts. And shout out to our own Dr. Brandon Ware, who's done some serious research on food deserts. Friends, greed is inflicting a far more grievous wound on our society than homosexual practice. Homosexual practice is a contradiction of God's created order, but greed is a contradiction of God himself. Homosexual practice didn't make the list of the seven deadly sins or the prohibitions of the Ten Commandments. Greed did. You shall not covet. So to the greedy, Paul says, watch out or you will share in the condemnation of those who practice homosexuality. And to those who practice homosexuality, Paul issues just as fearful a warning. Watch out or you will share the condemnation of the greedy. So friends, if we are going to have any chance of addressing homosexuality in our culture today, a couple things at least that we need to know. All homosexual practice is sin, but it's not a super sin. And we're not somehow safe if our struggle is only with greed. And friends, which of us hasn't struggled with greed or with other sins mentioned in this passage? See, these sins are all in the same damnable category. And who of us can say, I have made my heart pure. I am clean from my sin. Not one. Sin is a big issue for all Christians, not just those who are same-sex attracted. The Christian life is marked by the struggle against sin, and none of us are exempted. And the Christian church is the place where we can struggle together. Friends, if for the love of Jesus you have left behind a life of homosexual practice, 
welcome. The church is the place for you. And if you still struggle with homosexual desire, we will struggle with you. Friends, if for the love of Jesus you have left behind a life of greed, welcome. The church is the place for you too. And if you still struggle with greed, we will struggle with you. Friends, if for the love of Jesus you have left behind a life of alcoholism or a life of cursing and reviling or a life of any kind of sexual immorality, welcome. The church is the place for you. And if you still struggle with drunkenness or anger or lust, hey, we all struggle and we will struggle with you. You know, other than maybe prayer team, the folks who will come up and pray with you after service, there's, it's kind of hard to do much struggling with each other on a Sunday morning, except maybe for out with donuts and coffee, okay? But please, friends, plug in, get involved here at Grace, commit to the kinds of regular events and meetings where you can struggle together with your brothers and sisters in Christ. We've got home groups and Bible studies, We've got women's retreat and BobCon. We've got prayer team and band of brothers and ushers and lots besides. These are some of the places where we can struggle together to live in the freedom of the gospel. And in that struggle, we can be sure of victory. For by the love of God the Father, we have been washed. We, all of us, we have been sanctified We have been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Amen.